Good morning, and welcome to Grace Baptist Church. Thank you so much for being here on this beautiful Sunday morning. Whether you're watching online or joining us here in our auditorium, thank you for being with us today. A few announcements before we begin. Uh, lots goes on on Wednesday evenings. Uh, Pastor Gary has his midweek service in the fellowship hall. The teens meet in the gym. The kids meet in the kids' chapel. And there are two other classes that meet in the high school building, one taught by Pastor Jay, one taught by Scott Shafron. All of those meet on Wednesday evening. Uh, don't forget our ladies will be uh, encouraged to attend the Ladies of Joy, excuse me, the Women of Joy Conference in Myrtle Beach this year. And that is from April 29th through May 1st. We have our junior kids signed up for camp. That's rising third through rising seventh graders. Uh, if you have not got your child signed up for camp yet, please see me afterwards, and we will talk about the weeks that we can get them into camp. Uh, on the back table, we do have our blessing bags. Uh, there's a card back there to show you how to use them or tell you how to use them. Uh, grab a couple of those and pass them out this week as you see people that may need just a little extra blessing. Again, those are on the back table uh, in the back. We will be celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning during our morning service, and we will be doing it before the second through fifth grade are dismissed for their class. So if you're in the auditorium this morning, you have not picked up your elements, uh, they're back on the back table, uh, slide out during the first song and, and, and grab some of those. Also, our offering boxes are in the back. We also have our benevolence plates in the back, which we do each month when we do the Lord's Supper. Uh, so again, thank you for those who've continued to give. At this point, we're going to turn it over to the rest of our service.
Amen. The Bible tells us, be still and know that I am God. Appreciate the choir stilling our hearts this morning and calling our attention to the awesome power and sovereignty of our Savior and our God. Uh, we want to continue now with the song that we've been learning as a congregation, Come Thou Fount, Come Thou King. Let's stand as we sing.
as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper here in just a couple minutes, let's turn our attention to the work of our Savior at the cross. And let's sing the song that we've learned together, The Wonderful Cross.
Thank you, Susan. As Pastor Brian mentioned in our opening video this morning, we will be observing the Lord's Supper, and we're going to be doing that at this point in our service. And so if you did not yet pick up elements on your way in, if you have some men in the back that are able to get those to you, if you could just raise your hand and uh, they can bring the elements to you. And if you already have them, you can go ahead and open those. We'll be using those in just a couple of moments. And as we think about the Lord's Supper, one of the reasons that we are doing it uh, earlier in our service today is that we do believe it's important for our kids to be um, here in the auditorium for the Lord's Supper and sometimes with uh, children's church and other places that they scatter off to, we wanted to make sure that today they were here in the auditorium um, with us and so they could also then uh, participate in the Lord's Supper. If you're visiting today, you may be uh, wondering whether or not uh, you should partake of the Lord's Supper this morning and let me encourage you that if you are uh, confident in your relationship with Christ, in other words, there has been a time and a place when you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for, your, for salvation and you know Christ is your personal Savior and you are currently living a life of obedience uh, to His Word, uh, we would then invite you to participate with us this morning um, as we observe the Lord's Supper. Before we partake of the elements, I do want to draw your attention today uh, to a passage of Scripture that I was um, thinking much about and preparing my own mind and heart over the last couple of days for the Lord's Supper. It's found in John chapter 20, and these events are taking place after the crucifixion of Christ. They also are taking place even after the resurrection of Christ. And where we are going to read from is just after an occasion where Jesus, after his resurrection, has already appeared to some of the disciples. And I want you to listen as I read in John 20, beginning in verse 24, we find this account. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. In other words, he was not present the first time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples. He was not there with them. Verse 25 says, see, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. In other words, Thomas says that in order for him to believe, to put his faith in Christ, he has to see him, he has to touch him, he has to experience Christ on a very personal level. Verse 26, John tells us this. It says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. In other words, they were in a room. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered in verse 28. He answered Christ and he said some of the most profound words in Scripture when he said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Listen to the rest of the verse. Blessed are those who have not seen 
yet have believed. None of us in this room were present at the resurrection. None of us in this room were in this particular place with the disciples when Jesus appeared to them. None of us were standing side by side with Thomas. And yet when Jesus shows himself to Thomas, and he says that you have believed because you have seen me, blessed are those who believe who have not yet seen me. We have not seen Jesus physically, but we have experienced his new life through the resurrection and through the power of the resurrection through our faith in Christ. Now, John goes on in the next couple of verses and tells us something even more interesting. In verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by by believing you may have life in his name. As we observe the Lord's Supper today, and we think about this moment when Thomas had the privilege of experiencing Christ in this very real and personal manner when he stuck his fingers into the flesh of Christ that had been pierced. And today we hold a little wafer. It doesn't taste very good. It's kind of got a weird texture. But that's not the point. The point is that when Jesus left us this picture, by the way, this is one of the few aspects of worship that we are commanded to do as a church. That is, you're holding the wafer in your hand. We don't subscribe to the idea of Roman Catholic theology that this literally becomes the body of Christ. But nonetheless, it represents his body. It draws our minds to the image of, of our Savior, with a crown of thorns pressed on his brow, nails driven through his hands and his feet, pierced, bleeding, dying for you. We can't touch his physical flesh, but may we, as we hold this wafer, remember his body. Remember the stripes that he took on your account. By your stripes, by his stripes, we are healed. And so while we don't believe this physically becomes the body of Christ, his flesh, it represents something profound. And may we never forget this imagery, this picture of this broken body that Jesus suffered and died for us. When the Apostle Paul gives instruction to the church on how to partake in the Lord's Supper and how to remember his body, Paul says this, he says, for I received of the Lord what I have delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Not only does this picture leave us with the bread, but we come to this very small cup of grape juice. We don't believe that this becomes the blood any more than we believe that the bread physically becomes his body. It represents, however, the blood of Christ that was shed for us. As Scripture tells us that apart from the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. All the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament leading up to the coming of Christ, they were simply a picture of the Lamb of God. As John said, behold the Lamb of God when he saw Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world, that everyone who believes in him should never perish, but forever have eternal life. And so as we think about this cup, as we partake of it, we remember his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. And that is why Paul tells us, once again in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25, he says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament or the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we have taken time this morning to do as you have commanded us, to stop and to remember. And God, as we think about this imagery that you have left for us to take these moments to reflect and to remember, we thank you that we can have hope of salvation, we can enjoy redemption through Christ's broken body, through his shed blood, and through his resurrection. And so, Lord, today as we remember, I pray that you would use this time of remembrance in our hearts to help us, to help us grow, to help us mature, to help keep our eyes fixed on you. And we pray now for the rest of our service as we sing this next song that we would reflect on the truths that we sing in such a way that would remind us of the power of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This time of partaking of the Lord's Supper uh, is to be a time of drawing closer to our Savior as we examine ourselves, as we do business with Him. But this process of drawing closer, drawing nearer to our Savior doesn't end here. It's a process that should continue every day as we journey through life. So we're going to sing a song now that says, Jesus, draw me ever nearer. And let's remain seated as we sing. Jesus, draw me ever nearer as I At the end. 
mention a couple things. Uh, one, many of you have been very kind to remind me that when I preached a few weeks ago, I said we were going to move the piano uh, the next week, and I have nevertheless forgotten three weeks in a row, okay? I'm just mentioning that to let you know that I haven't, I, I'm remembering it now, but we're not actually going to move it this morning in answer to several of your questions. We are going to move it next week, though, so if you can be planning to help us with that next week. Also, if you would be praying, we have a, a large group of students this week that are going to be traveling to Raleigh to compete in a fine arts competition, and actually right now we're going to hear uh, one of the young ladies who is... Uh, going to be competing this week. Miss Emily Bloom is going to come and play a piano solo for us, and then Pastor's going to come and preach.
Thank you, Emily. I'll tell you, fine arts season is one of my favorite times of the year, and as, as Pastor Wes um, mentioned, do be in prayer. Um, we have a lot of kids to transport over the next three days up and back, up and back from uh, to Raleigh, and many parents will make the trip as well. And uh, one of the things that is always fun around fine arts time, my office, as you may not know, is right through this wall. And this hallway is lined with practice rooms and things like that. So we get to sit and listen to the choir um, sing and hear some of the instrumentalists um, play. And uh, let me just encourage you, if you have children that are, that are young, uh, just coming up through the ranks, uh, let me just always push fine arts and encourage you to get your kids involved in, in, in music and singing acting, drama, speech, those kinds of uh, things, they're just profoundly helpful and things that you can use um, throughout all, really all of your life. Um, for a period of time, my, next to my office, uh, we had a harp teacher here on campus for a while. And one of the things about music, especially when you have young kids taking lessons, they learn, every student learns the exact same song. And I was sitting there one day, and it's like, if I hear Mary had a, or Mary Lou, skip to the loop, my Lou, my darling, it's called, if I hear that song one more time, I think I'm going to cry. So I went next door to the harp teacher and said, anything else, please, anything else. So it can be tedious, um, but encourage your kids um, to get involved in, in fine arts. Now, if you're visiting with us today, if this is your first time, we thank you for joining us today. We're so glad that you chose to be here this morning. And uh, printed on a card in front of you in the pew, there is a card that looks just like the one on the screen behind me. And I would invite you to take a few moments before you leave today and scan that card with your smartphone. And that will take you to an information card. You can tell us a little bit about yourself, also how we can follow up with you. If there's any questions that we can answer for you, we would just love to be able to do that. And uh, so please take advantage of that. Maybe you're not a guest, you're not a first-time guest, but you have um, been here a few times, or maybe you've only been, maybe you've been here for years, and you have a question or something that you want information about. You can use that same card. It'll take you to the same place where you can submit a question to us or express any interest in any part of the ministry that we would like to be able to answer those questions for you as well. So we are pressing on in our study of the life of David, and we're going to be in just a moment. Uh, looking at a, another section of 2 Samuel chapter 5. And as we began looking last week, we studied uh, the opening verses of this chapter. And uh, if you are jumping into this study, let me just give you a very brief synopsis of where we are. Uh, years before, many years before, when David was a young man, a shepherd serving his father, God had called David to be king over all of Israel. And through a long series of events, a man by the name of Saul became king. And while Saul was king, David was actually the one then anointed to be the next king over Israel. And uh, when he became king, initially David began ruling in Judah, which is the southern part of the nation. And eventually, where we were last week, he becomes the king over all of Israel, the northern tribes of Israel and Judah to the south. He now becomes the king, the ruler over the entire nation of Israel. And one of the highlights that I think bears repeating is that for those of us that live in a culture that is filled with demands for instant results, we see that while David was promised to be king, 
It took many, many years before that promise became a reality to him. And so many of us, when we face challenges and difficulties, we would perhaps give up and not be faithful the way that David was. And we need to remember that David's path to the throne was, was very complicated. There was a lot of challenges. There were a lot of setbacks. And yet God remained faithful to David. And David now is sitting on the throne of Israel. But that does not mean that his path is going to be suddenly now an easy one. And oftentimes, I think in our Christian life, we believe that if my life isn't perfectly comfortable, if everything is not going exactly as I believe they should be, if my life isn't easy, then maybe I'm not where God wants me to be, or maybe God is not listening to my prayers. We begin to come to arrive at all kinds of assumptions about God and believing that perhaps God is no longer paying attention to what is happening in my life, that we have this expectation of easy, without complications, without challenges, without setbacks. And yet, even now that David is placed on the throne, what lies ahead of him is more of the same. There's going to be more conflict. There is going to be war. There is going to be insurrections. There is going to be all kinds of challenges in David's life. But as we look now at the opening verses of his kingship, let's take a look at verse 6 of uh, chapter 5 and notice these words in verse 6 of 2 Samuel 5. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, Who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the, from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had, a, had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. And verse 13, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. I won't read through the list of his children in verse 14, but the one that is worthy of note at this point is Solomon is born to him. So before we look at this text this morning, let's pray together and ask the Lord's help as we study his word. Father, we take this moment now to draw our attention to your word. These events that happened now thousands of years ago are given to us for our instruction. And so God, I pray that as we look into your word today that we would learn insights of the spiritual calling that you have to us, the Christian life that is before us, that we would live in a way that would bring honor to your name. And we pray your blessing on our, on our time in your word today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, as David now is anointed king, the realities of leadership are now thrust in front of him. 
there are now going to be decisions to make. Some of these decisions are matters of life and death. There's going to be battles to fight. In fact, we don't have time today, but in verse 17 down through the end of the chapter, he has a war with the Philistines. My attention was drawn this week to an article that was some time ago now, back in 1996, many, many years ago now, an article that was found in the Wall Street Journal. And in this article, the writer is arguing that there is a certain level of economic blessing that when a nation reaches a certain point economically, that they, in a sense, lose the desire to fight in warfare. In fact, in this article, the writer man by the name of Friedman said this. He said, and I'm quoting him, he said, so I've had this thesis for a long time and came here to Hamburger University at McDonald's headquarters to finally test it out. The thesis is this, he wrote, no two countries that both have a McDonald's have ever fought a war against each other. He goes on and he said this, the McDonald's folks confirmed it for me. I feared the exception would be the Falklands War, but Argentina didn't get its first McDonald's until 1986, four years after their war with Britain. Civil wars don't count, Friedman said. McDonald's in Moscow delivered burgers to both sides that fought in the war pro and anti-Yeltsin forces back in 1993. Now, what is Feldman getting at? He's making reference to something called the Golden Arches Theory of Conflict Prevention. I'll get the word out. Golden Arches Theory of Conflict Prevention. This so-called theory stipulates that when a country reaches a certain level of economic development, that that nation has a middle class big enough to support a McDonald's, and that nation will no longer desire to fight a war because... They would rather have their Big Macs than tanks and artillery. This little theory was destroyed in the last few weeks. Russia has some 850 McDonald's. Ukraine has 108 McDonald's. Warfare and conflict is assumed. As we said in the previous message that when we look at the pages of history, you see times of war far more than you see times of peace. In the Old Testament, even under the leadership of King David, who is going to be a man after God's own heart, there is going to be conflict irrespective of any economical success that the nation of Israel is going to achieve. So, why draw our attention once again to warfare? Well, because David is going to face warfare in this text. He's also going to face it at the end of the chapter. And he's going to face it in chapters that are going to come in future weeks. And the reason is, we are drawing our attention to this, is we can learn much through times of conflict and warfare. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civil pers- civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. 
We are, in a sense, soldiers of the cross, called to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. We've been studying necessary qualities for life and leadership. Well, we could say it this way. What are some necessary qualities that we need in our spiritual life to develop a right attitude toward Christianity and a right perspective on how we uh, approach this world? And so from these 10 verses or so, let's draw three practices that we see in David's life that we can glean from and draw from and apply it to our own lives. The first uh, practice that you see found in verses 6 through 10 is that David practices initiative. Now, it's interesting for us as New Testament believers looking back at the Old Testament that sometimes we lose perspective over what is taking place. And notice what David does. He has now been named king over all of Israel. And so what is the first thing he does is he begins to move his capital from Hebron, which is to the southern part of Israel, to a more centralized location to the city of Jerusalem. Now there's a problem. By the way, this is a wise decision, right? Because no longer does David want his capital to be in this southern part of the nation. He wants it to be in a more central location. He wants it to be more central in the nation. As the people that he has already been leading in Judah, they would be perfectly content to have Hebron remain as the capital. But as you're bringing in now this new group of people to the north under his kingship, it makes a whole lot of sense for this capital to be replaced and to be moved into a more central location that would bring unity to all of the land. Now, there's a problem, however. Jerusalem was originally a Jebusite city. In fact, it is known elsewhere in Scripture as the name Jebus. An example of that is Judges chapter 9, verse 10. The Jebusites were descendants of Canaan. And we see them throughout the Old Testament. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Genesis 10, 16, Numbers 13, 29, Joshua 11, 1 through 3. In fact, in Joshua 15, verse 63, we find these words. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Now, let's put Jerusalem in a little bit more of a historical context, because there's some interesting phraseology that happens in this, um, in this text when we talk about the Jebusites in, in verse 6, and they say to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will warn you off, or ward you off. They thought David cannot enter into the city. Why? Because it was practically impenetrable. The walls of the city were, were fortified. They, it was high on a hill. This would have been a very difficult battle for any army to come into this place and to besiege and take over the city of Jerusalem. And they make this sort of sarcastic, I see sarcasm is in, the, is in the Bible sometimes. They make this sarcastic sort of statement. He says, you will not come in here. The blind and the lame can ward you off. We could take, the, we could take blind people, we could take lame people, put them on the city wall, and you will never get into the city. It will never happen. Nevertheless, 
David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. Well, how did he do it? Well, he says in verse 8, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it became this statement that was a kind of an idiom, the blind and the lame shall not come into this house. And so while David seems to have an impossible task that this city was not going to be taken, that they enter in through a water shaft. And in fact, I have a picture here I want to show you on the screen um, behind me, if we can get that to come up. Um, this may be very well one of the water sources that they were able to access. Um, I've been to Israel. I've been in Jerusalem. I've walked through some of these very narrow passages, and they had a very elaborate system of, of moving water beneath the city, and there were caverns such as these. This is a picture from that area that in 1867, a man by the name of uh, Warren discovered this shaft, and this would lead underneath the city, and it would come up into the middle of the city, and that is what David's men do. They enter into this shaft, they come up inside the city, and they catch the inhabitants of Jerusalem unawares, and they are now able to capture this city. Now, I'm going to read for you, I don't do this often, but I'm doing this because I want to explain something about your Bible a little bit this morning. There's a complimentary passage found in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. And let me just read these verses for you. You can turn there, and if you can catch me, that's fine. You can read along. Um, in 1 Chronicles 11, verse 1, Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. Verse 4, and David and all of Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, where the Jebusites were the inhabitants of the land. The inhabitants of Jerusalem said to David, you will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. David said, whoever strikes the Jebusites first shall be chief and commander. And Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first, so he became chief. And David lived in the stronghold, therefore it was called the city of David. And he built the city around the Milo in complete circuit, and Joab repaired, to, uh, repaired the rest of the city. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. Maybe you've read through your Old Testament, you've asked this question. You're reading through 2 Samuel, and a lot of the words that I just read for you from 1 Chronicles are very, very similar. And you may wonder at times, why did God put these two different books of the Bible that almost say essentially the same thing? I'm glad you asked that question. I want to answer it for you very briefly. Um, first of all, First and Second Samuel was written around 970 to 930 BC as a history of what is called the United Monarchy. This was the time when Israel was ruled by one king. After this period of time, after Solomon, they are going to be a divided kingdom. They're going to have kings in the north and kings in the south. We won't get into all the details of that, but First and Second Samuel was written about 970 
B.C., almost a thousand years prior to Christ. First and second chronicles were written around 450 to 425 B.C. as a history of Israel for the returning exiles. In other words, first and second chronicles was written to the group of people that were coming back into the land after being out of the land in places like Babylon. Why? Well, after a generation... People would have forgotten, people wouldn't have known, people wouldn't have understood their history. So God isn't being redundant by giving us these two books. It is showing us that as now the people of God were coming into the land, that they were then given a history of their people as they're coming back into the nation of Israel. So David practiced this a uh, wise decision of making Jerusalem to be the, the capital now over his combined kingdom, and he took um, initiative to do that. Secondly, we won't spend much time on the king of Tyre here, but we see the king, I won't reread the verses, but the king of Tyre um, comes to David, and he offers assistance to him, and David practices discernment. He receives help from this Phoenician king. They were a trading empire. They were very important in that period of time. In fact, what is most likely this king's son of the same name is later going to help Solomon in 1 Kings 5. And so David now, as he's becoming king, not only does he move this, his capital to Jerusalem, but he also now solicits help and assistance from another king, this king of Tyre, and he is now using discernment as he is building these relationships. Now, I want to spend the last few minutes this morning looking at a third lesson we can learn from David. And unfortunately, we learn from a negative example. Notice again, oh, by the way, before I say that, notice verse 10. And David was becoming greater and greater. Why? Because the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Notice later it says in verse 12, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So while David was wise, and while David was a man of character, and while David had practiced uh, discernment, these successes, if you will, were truly an act of God. But now I want to draw our attention for the last few moments to a third practice that unfortunately David does not do well. Notice verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. One of the practices that we should follow in our spiritual life is practice of self-control. And here, as David now is becoming king, he begins to do the same practice that other kings around that period of time began to do, and that is to collect for himself a harem. He marries more wives. He brings in more concubines. And we are going to see in coming chapters that this is now beginning to foreshadow a very real problem in David's life. Now, this passage and other passages may raise some very interesting questions for you. Why would David practice 
polygamy. Well, I want you to first of all be reminded of the fact that this is a complete disregard for a commandment given in Scripture, particularly to David as a king. In Deuteronomy 17, we are told when God says, I will set a king over, when you say set a king over me, like all the other nations, Israel speaking there, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. That is why the people of God said to David, you are flesh and blood with us. Verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he require for himself excessive silver and gold. It was expressly forbidden for David and for kings to take on multiple wives. Now, if you're a student of Scripture at all, you're probably well aware of the fact that there are people throughout Scripture, there are quote-unquote heroes of the faith that have been in polygamous relationships. Abraham, Moses, David, and maybe the king of all uh, people practicing polygamy, can't get the word out, would be Solomon. Now, it begs the question then that we won't answer fully today, but what is the biblical perspective on polygamy? Now, make no mistake about it. Our culture today, the institute of marriage is under all kinds of attack. It is being redefined. I warn us that soon to come will be the argument over polygamy. And what is interesting is you cannot in Scripture anywhere find a positive representation of a same-sex marriage. It is not there. But what is interesting is we do have examples of polygamy. What do we do with that? Does that mean polygamy is acceptable? Let me up front say no. And remember that sometimes the Bible is simply recording for us what happened. It is not prescriptive. In other words, this is what should always happen. Monogamy, the marriage between a man and a woman, has biblical precedent rooted in creation. In Genesis 2:24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In fact, a chapter earlier in Genesis chapter 1, we are told again that God created mankind, male and female, for the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying. Now, I was thinking about this this week, and I don't want to press this too far, but it seems to me that if Adam was given the responsibility of being fruitful and multiplying the world, it would have been a whole lot faster if he had four, five, ten, a hundred wives. And yet, at creation, God created one man and one woman to be one flesh for one lifetime. Monogamy is rooted in creation. 
Monogamy was also indicated in the Mosaic law. Exodus chapter 20 verse, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Exodus 20 verse 17. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife. Singular. Monogamy was foundational in the prophets. Malachi 2.14, which is where I personally get my definition of marriage from. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. A covenant of companionship for life. One man, one woman for one lifetime. Monogamy was assumed in the teachings of Christ. In Matthew 5.32, everyone who divorces his wife, singular, not, does, does not say, Jesus did not say that when you divorce one of your wives. When you divorce your wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, make, you make her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Monogamy is also affirmed in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 1 Timothy 3.2, therefore an overseer, a pastor, an elder must be above reproach. He is to be the husband of one wife. He was to be, by the way, an example, according to 1 Peter 5, an example to the flock, not only in his shepherding ability, but in his marriage, in his family. I have much more that I could say about monogamy and the precedent that we find in all of the Bible, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New, it brings us then to the fact that why would we take a stand that polygamy is in fact a distortion of what God intended? Well, as we read through Scripture, as I mentioned, we have to distinguish between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Just because something is recorded in the Bible does not inherently mean that God approved of those actions. Let's not confuse God's patience and forbearance with permission. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, you have Satan's lie. Satan in the text is never directly confronted with his sin. But think about polygamy from a scriptural perspective. It is rooted in creation. It is affirmed in both the Old and New Testament. But let's get pragmatic for a minute. Let's look at the fruit that we see in Scripture in the practice of polygamy. The spiritual and family devastation that are found on Scripture's pages when it comes to the account of polygamy remind us of the beauty of monogamous marriage. Let me read for you, if I may, a couple of examples. Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I obtain children by her. 
And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her Abram and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. In Genesis chapter 29, verses, verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me a child or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who hath withheld from you the fruit of your womb? Then he said, Here is my servant uh, Bela. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that I may have children through her. So she gave him to, he gave him her servant Bela as a wife, and Jacob went in unto her. Thanks to Laban's deception, Jacob married Leah by mistake and eventually marries his sister Rachel. And you have conflict and division and jealousy ever since. Not only is there envy, jealousy, and destruction, but as we will find in 1 Kings, uh, we'll see in 1 Kings 11 verses 3 and 4, Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. His wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord. His God was the heart of David, his father. This is exactly why God said that the king of Israel was forbidden from practicing polygamy. The scriptures are profoundly clear for us. We are commanded based on creation, based on the plethora of information and accounts given to us in Scripture that monogamous marriage between a man and a woman is God's desire. So when we look at David's polygamy, it's not encouraging us to follow suit. It is not giving permission for mankind to practice polygamy. In fact, what we're going to find out over time is it is this very neglect, this very rejection of God's commandments that is going to wind up destroying, potentially destroying, making very problematic, David's life and destroying Uriah's life. In fact, he's going to be murdered because of David's lack of self-control. Now, you may be sitting there saying, well, polygamy is not really a big deal. There's only groups like the Mormons and others are the ones practicing polygamy. Well, let me encourage us to, rem to remember that polygamy today is often practiced in the digital world through online pornography and other illicit material that is so easily found in our culture today. The point behind monogamy was that this commitment, this covenant, one man and one woman for one lifetime was to be a permanent relationship that was the two coming together as one flesh and that no other should ever enter into that relationship. So in closing, what does this have to do with us? 
Well, number one, David practiced initiative to build unity among his people by relocating the capital to a more centralized location. And I look at those verses and I ask myself, how intentional are we with our time? How much initiative do we take with our own lives, with our own ministries, with our own marriages, with our own relationships? David was king, true, but in the opening days of his kingship, he took initiative to do what was right for the people of God. As people living in a world, if we're going to be prepared for life and ministry, there has to be initiative, intentional initiative. Second, we see that David was discerning as he's building these political alliances. And then third, we see negatively that David's lack of self-control and his desire to build up more political clout in the people around him through building his harem He lays the groundwork for what is going to cause great hardship and heartache in his life. And oh, by the way, always remember this, that what David tolerated, if I could use this word, moderation, his son is going to practice in excess. What we tolerate in moderation, our children take to excess. So as we look at the example here of David, the opening hours of his kingship, we find initiative, we find discernment, and we find, unfortunately, a lack of self-control. And if we are going to be what God has intended for us to be, if we are going to develop a spiritual life that is obedient, that is growing and maturing, We need to develop initiative, discernment, and self-control. Why? Because life is always filled with challenges, conflict, and problems. My question for you is, are you in the process of being a prepared soldier to stand firm for the gospel? Are you faithfully developing initiative discernment, and self-control that would allow you to be all that God created you to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these verses today and uh, the challenge before us is not a, at least at this point in our, in our history, our, we're not challenged with a physical warfare that we see on the pages of David's life, but we are very much challenged with a spiritual war that we face each and every day. And God, as we are called, as Paul gives us this illustration to be soldiers standing for what is right, may we be like David in our initiative and in our discernment. And then may we be men and women that are practicing self-control, making sure that we are basing our decisions on commandments of Scripture and not refusing to obey. So Lord, bless now the closing moments of our service, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask Pastor West to come, and he's going to lead us in a song of response this morning. Um, In just a moment, my wife and I will be slipping out into the lobby. So if you're a guest here today, stop by before you leave. We'd love to be able to meet you personally. Let's stand, and let's close. I think most of us know this chorus. Let's close by singing, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. Oh, how he loves you and me.
Amen. Don't forget our benevolence offering on your way out. You are dismissed. Have a great week.